Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my friend, dear old Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing really great. I'm really excited this week because we have a super special guest that we have kind of been talking about a little bit in our Facebook group. Um, We've mentioned this a little bit, but of course I'm talking about Allison Sweeney. She's here with us today. She has picked a case that is your favorite case, right, Melissa? My favorite case. I was thrilled beyond measure to see that this is the one she wanted to do with us. Yeah, it's a really good one. So I'm really excited to get into it. And uh, this is going to be a little different than um, how it's typically been when we've had guests on in the past. This is not going to be an interview. Um, Allison, can I call you Allison or Allie? Allie, yeah, for sure. You're uh, not, I'm not in trouble, am I already? No, no, also, no. Also, okay. hi, Allie. Yes, hi, Allie. And hi. welcome. Oh, yeah, welcome so, to the show. Hi. <laughs> this is the level of professionalism yes. we have. Yeah. <laughs> get ready. <laughs> So you guys know Allie, Allison, Allie Sweeney, from things such as Days of Our Lives, Sammy Brady, hosting The Biggest Loser for several seasons, and now you're even doing some stuff with Hallmark, right? The Hallmark mystery movies, Murder, She Baked? I do. I make uh, mystery movies and romantic comedies for the Hallmark Channel, and um I have uh, done a couple of, um, I did a Christmas movie last year. That was very exciting. I'm a big fan. And um, yeah, so now I'm getting into mystery movies. I have a new mystery series that I am developing and um, I can't sort of give anything away yet, 
but um, you're going to look back on it and be like, oh, that's why she's here. Just know that we're going to talk about this again. I thought you were here because we were great friends, but <laughs> you know, I'm that <laughs> It's double. It's both. equal. Equal parts. <laughs> sure. Equal Mandy, do you and Allie want to kick off our story this week? What are we covering? Sure, I will get us started. Um, today's episode is about the puzzling death of Kathleen Peterson, the lively and popular wife of best-selling author Michael Peterson. Uh, Kathleen was born on February 21st, 1953 in Greensboro, North Carolina. She was 48 years old at the time of her death and had already accomplished so much in her life. She was highly intelligent, graduating first in her high school class, and she became the first female ever accepted into the Duke University School of Engineering, which is kind of a big accomplishment, I would She's say. She's amazing. I'm, like, jealous of her. I hate her already. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. By 1975, she had earned a bachelor's degree in civil engineering as well as a master's degree in mechanical engineering. She climbed her way to executive positions at a few companies and finally ended up as the vice president for a company called Nortel Networks, which is a, or was, a multinational telecommunications and data networking equipment manufacturer. That is a mouthful. And why wow. I didn't say it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that company was based in Ontario, Canada. Uh, prior to her marriage to Michael, Kathleen was first married to a physicist named Fred Atwater. And together they had one daughter named Caitlin. Their marriage ended in 1985 and Kathleen would not marry Michael until 1997. I mean, I could have a whole separate conversation about being married to a physicist. Yeah. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> Well, that's just like that must too be complicated. Yeah, that's two like really good brains together. I yes, don't know. That's Mandy, like a very that's strong two really good brains together. <laughs> <That> is... <laughs> but Caitlin like has the gene pool like nailed. Caitlin is like yeah, she got is to be luckiest the kid department. ever. Yeah. So, Allie, yeah. when did you actually hear about this case? Do you remember what what kind of drew you to this one? Um, so actually it was maybe your friends at a uh, true crime garage, yeah, like yeah. made a list of the best, um, like documentaries. If you're into true crime, you should listen to them. And so I was like, Oh, I had, there was a few I hadn't heard. And this was one of them. And I was just entranced by it mostly. Cause I like, I'm fascinated by the fact that you don't know, right. Like right. that there's all sorts of questions. Right. Um, though I do want to know, like, you know, I mean, I feel like. I, you want the answers, but um, I like that it was in so deep and the whole trial of it. And as you said, I think before we started recording was just just like the pretrial and those conversations and what a lawyer does. Like, I think it's yeah. a great documentary. I highly recommend it. Absolutely. It was kind of making a murder before making a murder. Like this whole, yeah. it kind of kicked that whole thing off. I think if there wouldn't have been the staircase, I don't know that there would have been making a murder. So I find it super fascinating as well. Absolutely. Hands down. One of my favorite cases. Um, I think Michael Peterson is the one who's just the obviously main character in the story. He'd been married once before, and he married an elementary school teacher in Germany. Her name was Patricia. But I'm not sure if they got married in Germany or, like, because she's not German. She right. was American, right? They oh. just lived in Germany. Anyway, I, had, I don't know. Yeah, well, I, had, I was kind of confused on that, too. But I thought that I had heard that they kind of, like, moved back and forth between Germany and the States for a little while. So where uh -huh. where do super pretentious people come from? Because that's where Patty came from. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was tough stuff for me in the whole thing. I was staring daggers at her. Oh, my God. I know. It's crazy. Okay, so back to the story, wherever she's from, is not that's not what we're focused on here today. They had two sons, um, Clayton and Todd. 
He was a novelist and a New York Times bestselling author famous for his work titled A Time for War, which he wrote after serving as a Marine. He was honorably discharged in 1971. There needs to be an asterisk by that sentence because more on that later. Yeah. Uh, um, but I don't want to spoil the surprise. <laughs> During this time, a close friend and widow named Elizabeth Ratcliffe died unexpectedly. So this, so Elizabeth and her husband had lived next door to Michael and Patty. And like, I think they were all four of them friends, right? And then right. the husband died and Elizabeth was a widow for maybe one or two years. And then she died unexpectedly. Naming Michael, also, there's an asterisk by that thought <laughs> and more on that to come later. Um, but she named Michael in her will as the sole caretaker for her two daughters, Margaret and Martha, as well as the proprietor of her personal property. That sounds so official. So when Patricia and Michael divorced, the two sons went to live with Patricia, and Michael and the adopted daughters from Elizabeth Radcliffe went to live with Michael in Durham, North Carolina, where later he married and uh, met and then married Kathleen in, in proper order, ladies and gentlemen. That's how that <laughs> uh, so then cut to, um, they lived in presumably, I mean, according to all sources, had like some happy life and those kids are all beautiful and seem quite intelligent and um, well-spoken. And then in 1999, this is like a crazy side story here. Michael ran for mayor and during of Durham, North Carolina, during the campaign, uh, he was caught in a lie that he had maintained for many years. He had always told the story that he um, had injured his leg by being hit with shrapnel um, when another soldier triggered a landmine when he was uh, in Vietnam. And he claimed that he had received a Purple Heart for that incident, as well as a second Purple Heart and two other medals of honor. But, but you know, I mean, once you become a politician, like... Stories like that tend to sort of reveal themselves. I mean, right. no one gets away with I don't know what... <laughs> how, like, how do you not watch the news? Like, how do you think you're going to get away with that? Even that, in 1999. That many things, too. It wasn't like, oh, I got a purple heart. It was like, here's the four things that happened right. to me. And yeah, I lost the paperwork, so... If maybe he had told stories before and then he wants to run for mayor, which obviously is not smart, like given that you have these lies in your background, but then, but you have to stick to it. I mean, you can't like now come forward and say, you know, I, yeah. I, as, as it turns out, I didn't really have that. Yeah. You know, you just have to try to write it out and be like, maybe they won't notice. Yeah, exactly. This is why you should never tell a lie. That is. There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, PSA number one. Yes. There you go. <laughs> We're great at those on the show. <laughs> no, Ali has her first one. Good job. Yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, as it turns out, he had no documentation to support any of that. In fact, we don't think that he was injured, you know, to do with the war at all. It was actually the result of a car accident in Japan. That's not funny, by the way. I just, I mean, having a car accident's a real thing. Yeah. And I'm very sorry for him. I'm just saying it turns out that it was, you know, an accident that could happen to anyone. In Japan, this man travels quite a bit after the war. And uh, the fact that everyone found out about this cost him the race for mayor. So on December 9th, 2001, Michael made a frantic 911 call in which he stated that his wife, Kathleen, had fallen down a set of stairs in their mansion. He stated that she was still breathing, but she was unconscious and she appeared to have fallen down about 15 to 20 uh, stairs. I And I appreciate and understand how complicated the 911 call, like, operator's job is, and they have to keep you on the line. But don't you feel like sometimes they ask questions that you're like, I don't, I mean, it's an emergency, and it's a trauma. 
Like, I, I can't even remember my name. You're lucky... I remembered the numbers for 911 right now. Like, <laughs> I, you're asking me how many stairs? Like, what? Like, I don't know. Let's What's just a normal number? At it. Like, I, <laughs> I'm with you. But I read something about this where the 911 operator, they're getting police there. They're getting the ambulance there at the same time. So they're just trying to get as much information and keep them on the phone. But it feels very not important in that moment. But you've seen stuff where later right. on they, they screw up in something they've said. And so it comes back to kind of bite him in the butt over the 911 call. Or I know on this one, he said she had been breathing at first and stuff. And so that comes out later. So I get it. But you do kind of feel like Right. Could, could you just no, I guess rush? it's good to have them talk. Yeah. Yeah. But, it does seem. Right, right. But yeah, but his 911 call actually, to me, is very genuine sounding. It really yeah. does sound like he came onto this horrible scene with his wife um, and then dialed 911. And to me, his the call sounded very genuine. Um, anybody listening can go look that up online. It's real easy to we'll find. Have it in we'll have show notes. Yeah, we'll link everything in the show notes. But um, And sometimes I don't feel that way about 911 calls. Sometimes I listen to them and I'm like, oh, yeah, this person is definitely guilty of something. They just don't even sound, you know, they don't sound like someone who's in the middle of an emergency. But that wasn't the case with this one, in my opinion. I don't know what you guys thought. Yeah, it sounded genuine to me. Also that, like, I, I liked how, I mean, I know this isn't that you said they're supposed to keep you on, but like he hung up because he's like, I, I have to go deal with my wife. Yeah. Like, I, I sort of that felt very real to me. Like, here's what I know. Here's the information. I don't know. 20, 15 stairs, like whatever he says. And then he's like, and then like, just hurry. And then he's done with you. Like, right. I, I don't know. That seemed very sincere to me. Well, it's not when, like, oh, yeah. Sorry. Whenever you have like, oh, it's 15 stairs. It's not like they're going to type a magic number in and like, oh, only 15 stairs. Then you just put right. one pillow under her head and she lives. Right. If it's right. 20, right. we have no solution. So it doesn't right. really make a whole lot of sense. I'm with you. Uh, but yes, I, I, I agree with you that it felt sincere. Did you think so too, Melissa? Yeah, absolutely. It was that was like a point for me for him his innocence i can't wait to we'll get, get to the end yeah, and talk yeah. about what everybody thinks about nah. it. Okay. <laughs> I, know. I know so when paramedics arrived they found kathleen at the foot of the stairs and she had no signs of life and they kind of noticed that the amount of blood in the hallway and down the stairwell was a little bit more excessive than what you would expect to see with just an accidental fall down the stairs um so homicide to say the least <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so homicide detective art holland was called in to investigate so you know things are getting serious when they call a homicide detective in to come check it out yeah um instead of well, just they think it's a homicide <laughs> <laughs> so things are getting serious yeah. <laughs> So the scene itself was kind of confusing. The, the paramedics noticed that the blood didn't really look fresh and it kind of had already started to dry and congeal by the time that they arrived. An area of the wall by the staircase appeared to have been cleaned or attempted to be cleaned with what they thought possibly could have been some kind of detergent. Um, it just looked like somebody had wiped the wall down with some some kind of wetness and smeared the blood everywhere. Um, uh, th that seems dumb. There was... Yeah. Like, who... There's well, it seems like someone erasers. tried to start doing it and then realized, like, this is too big of a job for my kitchen sponge, so maybe I should. Yeah. Is that, is that something, like, that we can all agree that maybe a man would do? Because, yes. like, any woman would know <laughs> that, like, no, that's too big a job. I just got to commit to it, like, whatever's going on. But a man might be like, I've never cleaned blood before. Maybe it's not that hard right. to, like, wipe up. I love that. Yeah, you're exactly right. Well, my dad, when we were kids, he had like a grease fire in the kitchen. And um, 
when we got home, like it had exploded all around him making like French fries or something. And you see this one wipe on the wall where he had decided <laughs> to like to go for it. So that story really spoke to me. <laughs> and he was like, nope, that's not going to work. I have to tell her the house caught on fire. <laughs> that's my life. So they also noticed that uh, the bottoms of Kathleen's feet were covered in blood, which would be impossible if she had fallen down the stairs and was knocked unconscious and just, you know, stayed in the position that she fell in. So they thought that was kind of suspicious, like that she may have at some point gotten up and walked through the blood and had some kind of a struggle during the scene because that's the only way she would have blood on the bottom of her feet. I'm here to say there's probably other ways, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, tell us. I don't know. I think somebody much smarter than me should come up with that. But there has to be another way than like in a struggle. If she tried to get herself back up, what if she tried to get herself back up? There's a pool of blood and she tried to stand up and she couldn't do it. That's a theory you need to put in your tank and okay. do something okay. with it. Okay, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> so the detectives also found two large blood drips on the back patio of the home, as well as blood smeared on the doorway, on the door that was coming in from that same patio area, kind of as if someone or maybe herself had touched something with blood on it, wiped it on the door or something like that. I need to set the scene also that their home is beautiful. So like, beautiful. I mean, the style, the decor, it just was like, it's just so East Coast. Like, it's beautiful home. That pool area, the the back, you know, that the patio was beautiful. Um, which leads us to Michael's version of events for that night, which is that he told detectives he and Kathleen had had a, had a wonderful evening together, as they always did. Um, which is immediately as suspicious. When you're like, yeah. what do you mean? We, we Every night, this is what we do. Um, <laughs> he said they had rented a movie, drank champagne, uh, the, or wine, right? Which one of the two, yeah. but both, obviously. Um, and enjoyed each other's company inside the home before moving outside to sit by the pool while continuing to talk. Maybe that is something that the three of us get to look forward to when our kids are like grown. But can we honestly just have a side note of like, after the movie, you're like, oh yeah, let's step outside and talk. No way. I'm like, I'm, if I made it through the movie at all, I'm in bed asleep, <laughs> like lights out. It, it, I, it, I just can't stay up until like one o'clock. No, and you want to... And you want to start a movie at 8 o'clock? That's when movies end. I'm done right. at 8 o'clock. Right. What kind of life is this? No. <laughs> so many troubling and like, And by the way, I, I think the movie they saw was the Julia Roberts movie, um, American Sweethearts. Yeah. Which is a cute movie. I, I'm not wrong. But like, uh, never mind. Maybe that's something for later on. Uh, we can discuss that movie selection when we reveal more of his character. Um, he said that at about 1 a.m., right, again, 1 a.m., Kathleen said she needs to go upstairs to work? Like, <laughs> what is this life? Anyway, and, um, and that he stayed at the pool for another 45 minutes. When he went inside, he found Kathleen at the bottom of the stairs and dialed 911. I will say the, the legitimacy for me to that aspect of the story was um, I think that they smoked. And if I had a nice house like that, I do not smoke. Um, not I'm not passing judgment here on people who do, but like I appreciate that they stepped outside. Okay, so then he comes in, he finds her at the bottom of the stairs, he dials 911. Kathleen's autopsy revealed more troubling clues to her death. She had seven deep lacerations on her scalp that the medical examiner Deborah Radish believed were inconsistent with a fall. She also noted the presence of red neurons in Kathleen's brain tissue. Red neurons, by the way. <laughs> as if I really know this, yeah. red neurons are shriveled up with little 
which, thank you, Mandy, are jelly-like fluid <laughs> that fills a cell. Whereas I just play a doctor on TV. Uh, I don't. I don't do that either. It's why I don't play a doctor, actually. You have, like, dialogue like that that you have to say, play a doctor or a lawyer on TV. Because you didn't really study the stuff. Like, you just get a script, with ha which has, like, words like that in it. And you have to really commit to, like, selling it. Like, yeah, give me 50 cc's of that whatever, cytoplasm. And that's hard. I think so uh, I do Tara Reid played a scientist one time. And I don't think that went over real, real well. But... <laughs> See, some people, that's why some people are better than others at, that, at this job. So there are red neurons that are shriveled up with little cytoplasm. Uh, as I explained earlier, a, the cytoplasm is a jelly-like fluid that fills a cell, whereas normal neurons are round with more cytoplasm. So what Deborah Radish is trying to tell us is that this would indicate that Kathleen had suffered a lack of oxygen at least two to six hours prior to her whole body death. So this brings up like huge questions about Michael's story. Right. Dr. Radish's professional opinion was that Kathleen was beaten, but survived long enough for the red neurons to develop by the time she died. With this information, Kathleen's death was officially ruled a homicide. A murder weapon was never found, but the lacerations on Kathleen's scalp indicated that the weapon used would have been narrow and rounded. So when you heard of this whole story, did you immediately think... Did you have immediate opinions early on or and did they change as time went on? So the initial yes, I did, of course. Like A I million. have lots of opinions. <laughs> yeah. But but mostly it was blood on the walls. Like if you want to Google this crime scene, I I highly recommend because it is just baffling. The amount of blood in this um on the walls, on the floor, like on her body you know you just find yourself it just it defies belief like right. falling down the stairs just does not answer what happened like where all that blood came from um so that to me was the biggest like just common sense tells you that can't possibly be the story right um I mean at the time that I first saw it I was sort of new to the true crime scene and so when the doctor said like look she was obviously you know being restricted blood or uh, oxygen or whatever before she died, like you just take that at face value. And then you come to learn that there's like other doctors, other scientists, and maybe she's super qualified, but there's other specialists who can give you the exact same set of facts and they come to a completely different conclusion. So right. this is what she came away with. But I also, you know, it does not escape my notice that she's in Durham, North Carolina. Like how many murders right. has she seen? And maybe she's done tons of them. I don't, I don't, maybe there's the murder capital of America, but um, I don't <laughs> know not. that she's seen as many. No, good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, right. Like I just, I, I just, but I will say that like, there was just no way, there's no way you walk up on that scene and not think to yourself, like there's something more to this story. There's no way she fell down the stairs. Right. Well, actually, that is what they thought. And uh, Michael quickly became a suspect in this woman's death, um, which they were considering a murder at this point. Uh, detectives that were working the case uncovered many inconsistencies in Michael's original tale of the events. Um, while forensic investigators searched the home computer, they discovered that Kathleen had sent an email to a co-worker at around midnight. So... That meant clearly she was inside and at the computer at least an hour earlier than what Michael had said that she was. He said it was 1 a.m. So let's just wait, pause, pause for a second and explain to people who are young, like you two, that in 1999, people did not have phones with email in their pocket. 
Right. So at that time, you had to be at an actual desktop computer. And you had to dial it up, right? Like it yeah. was like, do, 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 do. I do remember that sound. I mean, yeah. like, there's a whole... you remember like some oh, old sweet. person in your house doing that. <laughs> some old person, my parents. <laughs> well, they were older than you. And like, and like, it would take an hour for the website to come up if there was even a website. Like, we're probably talking like AOL at this point, right? Like, you have mail. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, this was a complicated thing. So the next part of the story is like a big part of the story, I think, because it's how they open the second episode on TV shows. We call this a bomb drop. Yeah. (laughs) Like big reveal. Get ready for it. Here it comes. Yeah. (laughs) So they found thousands of pornographic images and emails that Michael had been exchanging with a male escort. And he was actually arranging to meet this person for a sexual hookup of some kind. So, of course, that was kind of a shock to the detectives, especially because... That's not what you expect to find whenever you're dealing with like a married, middle-aged couple. You know, you wouldn't expect to go on their home computer and find find things like that. Um, Of course, whatever y'all do in your own time, that's your business. (laughs) Yeah, we're not judging. No, no. No. We're just saying. But it's just a part of the story that adds, it adds a little something to it. Um, So in these. This is still the 90s. I mean, I'm just saying way long ago yeah for sure uh so in these emails michael was upfront about the fact that he was married and he even went so far as to say that he was happy and that his wife was great um it was just that he felt like he was bisexual and wanted to seek out those types of relationships also um other emails revealed a different affair that Michael had previously had with a college lacrosse player. And detectives wondered whether it was possible that Kathleen had stumbled upon these emails and all these images um, sometime that night and whether that could have been something that set off a confrontation that eventually led to this altercation that ended in her death. Um, I mean, I think that's pretty plausible. It's plausible. Just if your husband's having an affair with anyone to immediately find that and just you I don't think you care who it was you would go I would go crazy so yeah I would not be at the end of the stairs my husband would be I believe you two have already talked enough about like if anything happened near you you'd be suspected of murder yeah from your google google searches alone (laughs) so we're good let's be safe yeah we could but right also, like, how would you feel then if you do stumble across these emails in which he references you, the wife, right? And how great you are? Yeah. Like, when you, like I don't. That it's that, a conflict. There's a lot, there's a there's lot, a lot that I would feel. A lot of feels in that. Yeah, there's yeah. That's that's a lot that. to like unload and like have to think about. Like, like you get halfway everything. through and you're like, oh, he said I'm cute, right? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But now I'm mad again. So, yeah, that's a roller coaster. (laughs) The next thing detectives looked into were the couple's finances. Considering that they were both extremely successful in their careers and had that beautiful home and property that I mentioned earlier, Michael had made a lot of money on his best-selling novels. They were surprised to discover that the couple actually had a significant amount of credit card debt, nearly $143,000 to be exact. Oof. Wow. That's a lot of credit card debt. I I mean, I heard him speak later about this, though, and he kind of justified it as they had, I can't remember what vehicle, but it was a lease that they had taken out. So half of it was for the lease of this vehicle. And he said, you know, we're making $2 million or we're worth $2 million. And so that, that ratio is not that much. You know, if you think about it, to me, that's 
a lot of money. But to him, it wasn't it wasn't out of the ordinary, I guess. He kind of tried to explain that away. Still a lot. Uh, and and uh, so I guess it's just a little question for me is like, is that credit card debt? They gouge you for like 20% interest or was it like just debt that they were in to, uh, you know, um, a car dealership for a lease or something. And that would be like more reasonable. So, right. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. As it turned out, Michael hadn't made any money in more than two years, but Kathleen was supporting the whole household, including putting three girls through college. Isn't that always the way? The woman always has to, like, you know, keep things together. There you go. <laughs> on top of that, the stock that Kathleen once held in her company, Nortel, had dropped significantly, and what was once worth about $2.5 million was now dwindled down to about 50000 Ouch. Yeah. That, That's a hard hit. Yeah. Um, detectives then discovered that Kathleen had a hefty life insurance policy to the tune of almost $2 million. I, I have no words. I feel like I don't know where to go with that. Like that's a lot of debt and a lot of money. And yeah. And it, it speaks to motive. Boy. If he is, has killed her, then it speaks to motive when there are financial troubles that comes up a lot when there's like an easy out, so to say for life insurance policy, which is why my husband I will never have a high insurance policy. It's not yeah. a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. I don't need you to run off and be happy with your new wife. Like suffer, <laughs> suffer a little bit. I, you're not going to make any money also, off of me. Also, <laughs> just as a point of record, like it's not enough to have the life insurance say like, if there's foul play, you don't get the money. Right. Because like, here we are falling down the stairs and that doesn't cut it. So, I mean, you know, it's a complicated matter, but yeah. I think you're just playing it safe. Yeah. That I think just. That's all I needed Be from smart. you. Thank yeah. you, Allie. <laughs> You're my welcome. Life, my life motto. <laughs> so 
Bloodspatter analyst Dwayne Deaver analyzed the clothing that Michael was wearing the night of the incident and found watermarks on the front of his shorts, as if he was trying to remove the blood before the paramedics arrived. He also noted that there was blood spatter between the legs of the shorts, which he said is commonly seen in beating cases where the assailant is standing over the victims. Quick note, remember the name, Dwayne Deaver. He will come back. The forensic, <laughs> yeah. yeah, in a big way. The forensic team set up recreation of the scene and simulated the attack, and the spatter was consistent with what was observed on Michael's shorts. There was also a bloody shoe print found on the back of Kathleen's pants that matched the pattern of Michael's shoe. Here's the thing with that. I don't think the... The shoe on the pants is that weird. That's a crazy crime scene, and you're just running around and trying to help. I can see how there's so m- Don't look at me like that, Mandy. But I can see how there's so much going on that you're just For stepping sure. on things and running around and going and, crazy. And it's way, like the worst story would be like, oh, I think she's dead. Like, go grab her, hold her, or, like, try to make it right. Try to do something. Like, I I mean, I think the colder, more calculated thing that would be more suspicious in the story is if, like, oh, I didn't touch her. I didn't go near I mean, you know, I didn't want to. I wanna... saw she was dead. You hear that sometimes where they're like, well, I knew she was dead. You're like, really? Right. So what? you don't want to hug her or do anything? Yeah, I totally agree with you there. So near the end of the investigation, detectives discovered a bombshell. Dun, dun, dun. Another one. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's just bombshell after bombshell after bombshell. It was brought to their attention that Michael had been involved in an eerily similar situation 16 years prior, back when he lived in Germany with good old Patty. It seemed much too coincidental when detectives learned that Elizabeth Ratliff, the biological mother of Michael's adopted daughters, was also found dead at the bottom of a stairwell in her home, with many other striking similarities to the scene of Kathleen's death. Elizabeth's death was ruled an accident in Germany, and Michael had always told the girls that their mother had suffered a brain aneurysm and died. In a troubling twist, it turned out that Michael had been the last person to see Elizabeth alive. Officials made arrangements to have Elizabeth's body exhumed so that another autopsy could be performed in light of this shocking discovery. How Can we talk about this yes, for a second? Please. I mean, honestly. Like, I, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> I want the to revelation. Talk about it. <laughs> The, yeah, I, I I need to like unpack my feelings here because because if I were Caitlin, that's the daughter's name, right? Um, so it, no, the, it's the two girls, right? Martha, and Martha, Margaret. and Margaret. Sorry, my mistake. It's Martha and Margaret who now have to like deal with the fact that they are digging up her their mother's grave. Yeah. To to find out if the man who raised her right. and whom she they call dad may have had something to do with their death and it is and and like i mean what are we expecting to find in that coffin like oh my god it's been a very long time like yeah. whenever i think of martha and margaret it, that story is heartbreaking so their dad dies then their mom dies and then the parents that they're living with good old patty and michael you know they get divorced they go and move to the states and they find out um i think it was Mar- no, Margaret, who actually said Kathleen was the first mom we really had. She like yeah. took us in and brushed our hair. And so now they lose this mm. mom and they're told their dad could have done it. That's a lot of things. And then now Ugh. exhume your mom. No, thank you. That's too much. It's just too much. It's really like overwhelming. Absolutely. And um, just as a side note, I do have to say that like, if that were all true, like, can, how dumb do you have to be to to pull the same trick twice? 
Right. Like, oh, it worked the first time in Germany. They'll ne Once again, they'll never find out. Like, I'll just do the same thing again. I don't think I wrote this in the thing anywhere, but if I'm wrong, we'll just edit this part out. But <laughs> didn't they say that the sister of Elizabeth is who, like, tipped off authorities, like, called them and said, like, I think you're right. this was... Um, this this happened also with the right. same man, like, and it was kind of similar to the case you're dealing with now. So maybe you might want to check it out a little further. And didn't she then? Wasn't she also the one who's like, I thought that all along. And when she was on the stand, the defense attorney was like, Well, so did you say anything to anyone? Like, okay, so but then the first time you really made this accusation was just like a month ago. And she's like, Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That I saw was that too. She's like, I knew I needed to say something. They're like, Well, you had all this time. She's like, But now I am. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's super yeah. frustrating. Yeah. And then that's when we kind of go off to Germany and see Patty and her very robotic behavior and she was so hard for me Allie she was I could not I couldn't with her so the same medical examiner that performed Kathleen's autopsy also performed the second autopsy of Elizabeth Ratliff there was evidence that Elizabeth also had seven lacerations on her skull just like Kathleen and I googled this again before we started because I thought there's no way it's the same number and Mar Mandy was right it was seven so Dr. Radis determined that her death was also a homicide. So one quick note about that uh, death of Elizabeth Ratliff was that the German officials and the U.S. military police all kind of did their own little investigation and concluded that she died of a brain hemorrhage due to a blood coagulation disorder. Um, she had apparently reported several severe headaches in the weeks leading up to her death, and so I guess that was just a readily available reason for what could have happened to her. And so that's what they went with. And yeah, um, so her death was not ruled a homicide. Just um, that's kind of an important thing. I think yeah. uh, part of this story, it's important to know that hers was not a homicide or so they said, although I still think it's weird. <laughs> Wait, did they decide that after Dr. Radish had her say and said she thinks it is a homicide, then the German officials or no, no, no. The original from the beginning. From the beginning, yes. And then so when Dr. Radish um, had the body exhumed and, and checked out, um, then she changed the cause of death to homicide. So you guys can think what you will of that. I, again, I do. I will. <laughs> I, Bring it. What do you think of that? Well, okay, so here's what I'm going to say. Like, I don't think that she gets to call it a homicide. Like, imagine, I mean, I don't I don't know if they're embalming over there in Germany, but, like, I'm picturing a skeleton, right? Like, right. like this is a dead body from a long time ago. And, and just because there were lacerations, like, that does not automatically mean homicide. Like, you, you don't, it, she's, she's, in my obviously unprofessional opinion here, that sounds like a, a judgment she's made making based on the current set of circumstances right. that Emmy is supposed to be doing, at least according to David Lee, um, yeah. the uh, expert that the defense team brings up. Like, you're not supposed to be, like, kind of coming to conclusions like that. I think it's supposed to just be like, here's the actual scientific evidence of what I see in the body. There's no way that wasn't sitting in her mind when she performed this autopsy, like what she already knew from the other body. And 
So there you go. That's all I think. Well, that's kind of why I thought they should have had um, that second autopsy done by somebody else, because I thought it was kind of a right. Like it was too close of a connection. You know, she already had this information about the Kathleen's case. And then she is just going into it, assuming already that it's going to be something having to do with Michael Peterson. So I do feel like that was kind of it kind of opened up the door for a little bit of bias there. Yeah. Yeah. Michael went on trial for the murder on July 1st, 2003. The prosecution and the defense painted conflicting pictures of what Michael and Kathleen's marriage was like. The defense, of course, claimed that it couldn't be proven that the couple ever fought. And I thought this was a really compelling argument. Like, everyone who knew them, including the sister who thinks he did it, when she was first asked by the police, said they had a very loving marriage and that she never saw them, like, have any sort of real problems. Right. And that also includes their children, who said they thought the couple was very happy. And by the way, they lived together. They were married for a very long time. It's not like this can't, you know, it was a new relationship and then this happened. They had been together and their kids were grown and all this stuff, right? So so that's compelling to me. Um, The children all supported their father and insisted that he would have never done anything to hurt Kathleen. But then the prosecution asked the jury to consider how great of a marriage it could really be if Michael was, you know, shopping the internet for um, casual affairs or hookups or whatever they were. It was pre-tender, pre-tender, tender. Um, right, exactly. There was no swiping left here. Is it swipe left? We don't know. We <laughs> refuse to learn either. I was trying to be cool, like swipe something, and, and, I, and then it was a... That was it. That was my one chance to be like hip, and I didn't. Sorry. I <laughs> but um, one of the children was it, like one of the children sat on the other side of the court. Caitlin, it was Kathleen's yeah. daughter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the four children. So the just to clarify, Patty, your favorite, and mm-hmm. um, Michael's, and the two girls that were Liz, Elizabeth, and her husbands from right. before he passed away from Germany. And Caitlin, from the get-go, do we know, um, or early on, like, sat on the other side, on the prosecution side of the courtroom? She, Caitlin was on board and actually was kind of the spokesperson at first for the whole family and saying they were supporting Michael. And then when all the information came out about the affairs, that's when she said, I don't know this man. You know, I don't know what was going right. on. My mom wouldn't have stood for this. And then that's when she switched sides. That's tough. Uh, that's compelling. Yeah, uh, for sure. I know. And and so tough for the kids to find out, like, on the heels of losing their mom, whether literally or figuratively, they lost this woman that was so important to them. And then on to to have their dad suspected of it and then to have, find out that their marriage and their life was not what they thought. Like, it just, I can't imagine how hard yeah. this must have been for them. Layers of it. One of the strongest pieces of evidence from Michael's innocence was the 911 call, uh, which was not the type of call, you know, I think the three of us as experts all agree, it seemed very sincere and his horror and shock was was genuine. The defense called on the prosecution to produce a murder weapon in the case, and the response came with the accusation that Michael had used a blow poke. And in fact, it was like this big um, thing that the prosecution used throughout the, the trial was, you know, as, assuming it was this blow, blow poke, which by the way, like, I don't know if maybe you guys are on the East Coast, then you're in Florida, right? Yeah, you don't in Florida. Have fireplaces no, either. No. Right, like, I don't know from real fireplaces in general, never mind a blow poke. Yeah. Um, So the fact that this was, like, something that people kept saying, like, multiple times just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, 
And what is, a, we don't, I don't even know what a blowpoke is. It's like a long, you know, maybe the size of a golf club-ish type thing. And then when the sister, it, it turns out that this sister, ha, Kathleen's sister, had given the family a blowpoke, which like, dear sister, thanks so much for the <laughs> blowpoke. Merry Christmas. That's like a white um, elephant it's like a, gift. It's like the best yeah. white elephant yeah, gift. Totally. Like, pass it to somebody else. But I'm also like, she got up on the stand and really defended this gift that it was so useful to her and she really liked it when she got one so she gave one to everyone in the family everyone in the like, family <laughs> they hated christmas with her this you is know like something it. that my grandmother would do and she would be so sweet about it too like she would be like but i love mine and so i know that you're all gonna love this and like you yeah. know it's just it's it's funny it's sweet i mean everybody had a it's matching ridiculous. Blow poke. it's a terrible <laughs> gift and nobody wants a blow poke <laughs> So the point is the blowpoke <laughs> had been given years earlier and was never found. Um, in fact, it was not at the crime scene in the initial investigation. And the family said that the blowpoke was missing. And so the prosecution decided that because the blowpoke was medical examiner, Deborah Radish backed up the theory saying that the lacerations were consistent with the blowpoke. What the defense attorney said was that, you know, they had to find a murder weapon that wasn't as hardy or, or as heavy as say like what's the other thing that are, is that every fireplace more like the fire the iron you know like a really heavy thing, instrument yeah. um that like that would have been too heavy and it would have actually created you know a bigger injury so it had to be something like light ish but still you know uh, capable of inflicting a wound so um it was like a really narrow field of what this could have been and they the prosecutors thought it was a blow poke. Uh, the prosecutors also laid out how they believed Kathleen's death occurred. They alleged that her murder took place hours before the 911 call was made. They believed that Kathleen went upstairs to check her email on her husband's computer because she had left her laptop at the office and that while she was using Michael's computer, she discovered the emails that he had written to um, an escort that they were planning to meet up for sex. After making the discovery, Kathleen went downstairs to confront Michael about it, and he picked up the blowpoke to beat her as she tried to go back upstairs. It's not like every horror movie where, like, you're always yelling at the screen, don't go up the stairs. Yeah. For the next couple of hours, he attempted to stage the scene, placing sandals near Kathleen's body and attempting to clean up some of the blood. They alleged that Kathleen was not dead, and at some point, she must have stood up and tried to escape, but was attacked by Michael again. Yeah, and that's like worst case scenario. I mean, that's a terrible, all of that's horrifying that he got so, you know, the idea that he would have gotten so upset and just decided to kill her. Like, what would she have said, have said that, you know, would have prompted that really, like that kind of rage so quickly instead of just a conversation? Well, right. I mean, also that, like, the, the, what we do know is that any sort of cleaning up was failed, right? So right. it had to really happen in that stairwell. And, and, and it's all, I just, I just find myself like that. That's just so, um, like how, how, so she's what screamed from her computer, like, get up here. I yeah. Like, Wait till you hear what I read on your <laughs> computer. And so he's like, Oh, I know what that is. Yeah. He picks up the blood post <laughs> ahead of time and then comes over and then they're, they're on the stairs and like, uh, duel and I, I mean it it just I I find it, it just I, yeah yeah it's crazy. and it's one o'clock aren't they tired like let's right. talk about it tomorrow this is right. we've already watched a movie tonight I'm done right. let's let's reevaluate <laughs> tomorrow 
So the whole thing, the whole prosecution's argument or, you know, what they had said was the murder weapon, this blow poke that we've been talking about, but they didn't actually have it. So I thought it was interesting that they landed on that as the murder weapon, actually, after looking at pictures of the family's home, like throughout the years, and this blow poke is present. And then, you know, the sister had said, like, I've seen the blow poke at all of their addresses in the last, like, you know, however long. get over a blow poke. (laughs) (laughs) And just saying that, you know, um, that just saying that has to be it because it's, it's missing and this is, we've seen it in the picture and that looks like something that it could have been. Um, but they never actually were able to find it. So, um, and they had this whole thing about it. By the missing. way, is she keeping track of all the gifts right. that she gave them <laughs> like that? Yeah. Where's the like, you know, pillow that I gave, I mean, like you better have everything she ever gave you in that house, she, like front and center. She sounds like a good time. Her and yeah. Patty would have been buds. Yeah. <laughs> They sat together at the drive. Okay. So the defense actually was able to recover this missing blow poke and they presented it as evidence in the trial. So they said they had found it during a search of the Peterson estate in a corner of the garage and it was covered in dust and cobwebs and it really looked like it had been there for a long time. And so therefore couldn't have been used as a murder weapon because it wouldn't have cobwebs and stuff all over it if it had been used that recently. I liked this part of the documentary, um, that strategy conversation, because according to the documentary now, like, I don't, you know, what do we know? It's, it was just, um, the way the cameras told the story, but that they found it the night before they found this blow poke the night before they rested, the defense rested their case, like at the end of the trial. And then in fact, like there was tremendous debate as to whether, like how to present this, because they were sort of like suspicious that we're bringing this out at the last second. And then the defense lawyer, whom I quite liked, he seemed super yeah. um, amazing. But he was saying, like, but if we had, if we'd found it at the beginning, like, we wouldn't feel this way. It's really only that we just found it the night before that's just too, like, you know, like one of Michael's novels or, you know, a soap opera, if you will, <laughs> that they um, found it at the last minute. And I just thought that was a really interesting part of, like, the law or, like, presenting this case to a jury that, you you know, you have so much to worry about. You would think that, like finding it would be this huge heroic like oh my god thank god moment like oh my the the judge is gonna call it like cancel the trial like it's over (laughs) you know um but really it doesn't work that way that it's all about presentation and how it comes across and how the prosecution can sort of you know come at it with a completely opposite uh, you know um way it seems and it's up to the jury to decide and obviously you know, uh, the defense attorney was really worried about that. And, and with obviously rightly so, I mean, it's, it was just crazy. And then I sort of wondered to myself, like, haven't you had three years to look through the house? Like, why are you looking now? Like, what have you been doing all this time? <laughs> like I would have looked and I'm the finder in my family. Like a little thing is that like, I always say to my kids, like, do you really want me to, cause you know, I'm going to be annoyed that like I had to get up. <laughs> right, of course. Who wants to get up? Um, and so anyway, I just wonder like, had they been searching the whole house every weekend for two years and then finally they found it or did like, did he finally just sort of get up and say like, you know what, I'm just going to look one more time. And right. I don't know. Anyway, well, that was one that was, thing that, that was crazy. Yeah. And the investigators had said that, like, they're like, we searched the house ex- like thoroughly and it was not there. Like we didn't find it. So that does make you wonder too, like, where did this blow book actually come from? But I did hear Michael Peterson talk later and say when they came to search the house, nobody was looking for a blow poke. They didn't know what they were looking for. They were just looking for evidence. And you're not thinking this blow poke is part of it. And then that comes up in trial and then they're looking for a blow poke. The family is. So I can listen, I can buy a lot of stuff in this story. Okay. <laughs> oh, I know you can. 
Um, so the blow poke that was shown to the jury um, didn't have any, it wasn't mangled or bent and it didn't really look like it had been used in a crime. So that's just an interesting little tidbit. Um, so after a long and grueling trial, a jury found Michael Peterson guilty of the murder of Kathleen and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was taken to the Nash Correctional Institution where he and his defense team worked on an appeal. He was appointed an attorney after running out of money to pay for the one that he had, uh, which that's got to be so tough after you've been working with this lawyer this whole yeah. time and they, they know your whole case and everything and then to not be able to afford to continue. Well, it's got to be tough to pay all that money to an attorney who got you sent to prison. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I feel like there's like, I'd be like, can I, is there a refund? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kick some of it back into your commissary or something. Not the outcome I paid for. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, also, I, I, it was, this is another just part of the law that was really interesting to me in the documentary was just like that the brother said to him, you know, they'll take you. He's like, I'm really sure they're going to find you not guilty. But if they don't, like just, you know, it's crazy. But if they don't, it's okay. It's not over. You know, and he had this whole sort of like, you know, brotherly, lovely, like supportive thing to say just in case that's the outcome. And I don't know. I really liked his brother in that moment. Like it was such a cool guy thing of like, look, I know it's not going to happen, but if it does, yeah. I just want to say, I just need to say yeah. it. And I just really liked him in that moment. Yeah. I like the brother a lot. So in April of 2006, his appeal was heard before the court, and it was alleging that he was denied a fair trial due to numerous judicial mistakes, including that the information involving uh, Elizabeth Ratliff's death should have never been heard by the jury, which I struggle with because I think it was extremely relevant and definitely should have been heard by the jury. Um, to me, that doesn't seem like a reason that he should have gotten a new trial. What but did you think, Allie? Did you think they were wrong on that or... No, I, I mean, I think you can't not talk about right. it. That's his, that's like, it's such a huge part of, you know, especially because, I don't know, I sort of recently in a case we I was listening to talked about how like um, circumstantial evidence is actually still real evidence. Right. People always say, oh, that's just circumstantial. Well, that's not. It, but like, you know, um, that's still evidence that the jury needs to consider. And this to me um, was an important part of the story for the jury to take in. And I think, you know, um, there were some mistakes in the trial that I thought, you know, did sort of raise flags for me, but this was not one of them. Right. Agreed. So the appeal was denied after the judge determined that even though there were errors uh, and one of them was in a search warrant, that they really did not have any negative effect on the defense's original case. So that ruling was not unanimous, which meant that uh, under North Carolina law, he would be able to appeal it to the Supreme Court, which he did on September 10th, 2007. The court announced that it agreed with the Court of Appeals and would not accept the request for an appeal. So at this point, he has used up all of his options for appeals. And now the story's over. Oh, the end. Oh, but wait. Yeah. <laughs> what is that called in a TV show? Is that another? <laughs> it's a, it's, oh, you would, um, uh, a red herring, Ooh, right? Okay. Like the, oh, it's a, yeah. Yeah. That's what Josh Mankiewicz. False ending. Yeah. Red herring. Sometimes, like, if this were a novel or a TV show, you'd say, like, oh, there's too many endings in the story. Like, just wrap it up. You know, like, you can't just keep dragging the audience out. 
like this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, you can. But wait, there's more. There is there more. Is. Yeah, this is like the sequel. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there is more. So in November 2008, Michael's new attorney filed a motion for a new trial, alleging that the prosecution failed to present evidence about a tire iron and that they used an expert witness, good old Duane Deaver, and he had exaggerated his qualifications and had been discovered to have mishandled evidence and had shady methods of testing his theories and um that motion was actually denied in march of 2009 but duane deaver was still he's coming up he's Ugh. are we coming up more yeah, to talk he's gonna about have him? His oh day. my yeah, goodness yes is. there's there's so much about him i just that guy well and I, the, the interesting thing was with him is he actually worked at a lab he wasn't you know one of the lead investigators or anything so you kind of come to think like well he's going to be impartial there's you know what right he's an expert witness right yeah that's kind of what goes you know expert witness you expect yeah 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 (laughs) Dwayne Deaver and he really failed Dwayne Deaver under the dictionary definition of something is Dwayne Deaver (laughs) there you go and it's not a good word so (laughs) and it's not right it's not a word we say on this there you go (laughs) Michael and his supporters were not willing to give up on the hope of exonerating him so there is more to the story. Bill Peterson, Michael's brother, whom I just got through saying I liked, and he happens to be a lawyer as well. He came up with the most, oh no, this is not the long shot idea. This is the long shot it idea. Is. Oh my God. It is the best theory ever. Like, <laughs> I, I, I feel like there, there's like an emoji for this theory of just like the, your mind blown. Like you thought it had happened already, but like, just wait, this, this story is mind-blowing okay so he combed through all the boxes of evidence and he was searching for something else that you couldn't appeal on you can't just like keep re coming to the court like like you have to like come up with something new right right so he um i love that i don't really know that i just know that from like tv and you know dateline <laughs> so uh, but i sold it like with commitment we, as we nodded our like... heads and agreed 100 <laughs> percent. so you're good <laughs> right <laughs> okay good right so uh, so there you go so anyway okay so he talked to neighbors he talked to another attorney and this is what they came up with the neighbors suggested that perhaps kathleen had been attacked by an owl yes this is for real i'm not making this up it was an owl and he had read some like case file b- that had mentioned that there was a specific type of feather that had been found at Kathleen's, you know, crime scene. A man by the name of Tim Thompson, owner of Associated Microscopes. Sure, well, that's useful. <laughs> he examined the feather and he determined that it was a type of small particle feather that grew under the claws of an owl. I didn't even know this was a thing. <laughs> I No, right. Who would guess that? Yeah. Um, And he found out that when owls attack, they leave behind these small feathers. I would think they'd leave behind, like, big feathers, too. I mean, how – I've seen bird feathers in my – maybe they're just so strong, those owls. Yeah. They they only leave by the the little feathers. So after examining a clump of hair that had been pulled from the roots and was found clutched in Kathleen's hand, it was determined that there were two of these microscopic feathers tangled within it. I can't. I mean, that's that. That's huge. It that's is. Huge. That is right. big. That's that is big. Yeah, Mandy. Yeah, it, it is huge. It is. I don't know. I think. I don't know. I don't. We'll get know. into it. But I mean, it's just crazy because 
it let's like how else could that possibly happen right like i mean i know it's crazy to talk about an owl attack it's crazy <laughs> i know that but at the same time like if that's not what happened what are their what are owl feathers doing in her hand and why did she have her own clump of hair because you wouldn't pull out you're your swatting own off well owl. that's what i'm saying but i'm saying like if you were right. being attacked by like your husband you wouldn't pull your hair out i mean that wouldn't even make logical sense but i can see if you had an owl like I mean, you should see the way I flail around if there's just like a little bee or something. A bug. I mean, yeah. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> or even just like, just the suggestion that there might be some sort of insect on me sends me into like, you know, a tizzy, a full on Tasmanian <laughs> devil, like, oh my God, get it off me. And, and it's nothing. I mean, I just can't, I can't imagine, but like, I know how crazy it sounds, and yet you find yourself nodding your head like, yeah, I mean, maybe. Okay, I'm on board. Not the police, however. <laughs> yeah. The police were not on board, Melissa. The police found this theory laughable, and I can only imagine that they actually, you know, laughed out loud at this. Right. Um, but there are other experts out there who believe that this theory holds weight and that Kathleen's injuries are absolutely consistent with being attacked by an owl. They asserted the possibility that Kathleen could have been walking inside when an owl swooped down, landed on her head, and caused the laceration. So that explains that, too, because these owls are, you know, they're um, predators, right? right? Like, they have these talons, and and they're certainly not something you'd want to tangle with. And it would explain what how there was blood outside the house as well as on the doorframe. And like, what if she had, you know, sort of grabbed her head and run inside and, and, and she freaks out inside, loses her balance, trips on the stairs. Cause let's remember, like she may not have been, you know, I don't know what her um, blood alcohol level was in her blood, but she'd been drinking and it's one o'clock in the morning and she had some sort of like something, some, you know, uh, narcotic or something in her system. And then she gets attacked by an owl. You would be panicked and you would like kind of not handle it well. And you would run inside and run upstairs and you're bleeding and you could trip, trip and fall and fall down the stairs. And, oh, my God, can you imagine if that was the theory, if that really happened? And the owl theory fell on deaf, deaf ears in court, and Michael was refused a new trial based on this theory, which, of course, is not surprising. But still, I don't know that I discount this theory. I know. Didn't you sort of feel like everyone in this trial could have been on an updated version of Clue? Like you have... <laughs> <laughs> she's dead on the staircase with an owl as the weapon and Michael's over there with his like pipes smoking. Like, he's always got a pipe professor. yeah I'm telling yeah. you gotta update this update this game so my biggest problem okay because Melissa is on board with the owl theory I I am not I'm not really quite there I think um I think there's some things I would need explained, though, to, like, <laughs> to get that idea out of my head. But wouldn't you be screaming at the top of your lungs if this, like, owl is attacking you? So why? How come That's no one... a big property, though. I mean... I mean, I don't have a mansion, so I don't know how far away you'd have to be before you don't hear someone screaming that's at, getting attacked by an owl. At one point in the... Um... Episode, but they did do a test. They did. Yeah. Uh, Somebody screaming, help, 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 and you couldn't hear it outside. So you're idea is invalid and now you agree with it yeah here, you're wrong right Just, you're wrong <laughs> yeah. you're wrong Allie and I agree two to one it's I done. mean my but the, the connection between the first lady that he knew who died at the foot of her stairs so that's really what is that just a really crazy coincidence that he knew two women who had died in a similar fashion he, he, 
here's the thing to me that and maybe this is I'm just naive but like that even more is convincing to me that he didn't do it because if you did kill the if you if you had someone who died at the foot of the stairs like and you're the last person who saw them alive even if it was deemed an accident like there's no way you would think anyone with especially a writer who like is intelligent does write these stories he would think to himself like whatever happens she can't die near the stairs because like <laughs> that would be bad for me later you know why is this guy not looking into one story homes I have a question like his real Realtor should have been like, no, bud, <laughs> you can't do this. This is not a good idea. So, right, you need to go for the desert house, like you know, the Brady Bunch house. Oh no, that was two story too. No, never mind. Yeah, Take see, but, like, you need to go for a, one, uh, uh, what's it called a ranch house. Yeah. yeah, a ranch house would have been fine. <laughs> Nobody would have been dead if there was a ranch house. Well, something else that was, I guess, um, that speaks to you guys' owl theory. Um, Please don't be sarcastic with Allie Sweeney. <laughs> yeah, why are you? Why, why are you saying it like that? <laughs> Flip it to our guests. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> uh, so okay. Stop this. Okay. <laughs> so, so, but they said that the um, well, and the they had like a diagram drawn of her autopsy, and so they did say that like the injuries on the back of her head, it and it, it the way they were even drawn on the picture, it kind of looked like th- you know three know. talons. Like we little, agree. A claw. Yeah. Uh, it, it looked like that. Yeah. So, talons. You know. I see your talent now, Mandy. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it's a good thing. It's I funny. wish everyone at home listening right now could see yeah. how Mandy just like embodied an owl for yeah. a second. And we were like, oh, oh my God, look, an owl. Now uh, we're all believers. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Just yeah. What kind of yeah. acting is that? Like <laughs> when you become the character that you're. Yeah. Right, there you go. She's a method actor now. Congratulations. <laughs> I want to see nothing you're in. <laughs> I'm great at this. I know. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So I really looked into this hour thing just so you know like i read a little more about the owl theory and um uh it and i think you're gonna post the link on your notes right but that um they did say that like owls are really protective that time of year i can't believe i'm defending this right now but (laughs) but go with me but that like other people have taught have had claims of like owls you know some lady said like this owl chased her home and like was (laughs) pissed at her for getting too near his turf now, like, this is their backyard, and so I imagine they're there all the time, so why is this owl, like, kind of coming up now? I don't know, but they were saying that time of year is more prevalent for, like, uh, that tense. kind of aggression from an owl. So so there really was, like, owl people saying that this is legitimate. It, you know, for, take it for what it's worth. Frankly, we need an owl awareness month. <laughs> we need none of this. That's what the world needs now. <laughs> oh, God. Also, by the way, owls are huge. Huge. They are. Like, I, I had not realized that. I mean, you see them up on a lamppost or, like, a tree really far away, and you don't really realize. Well, I've heard people describe that as it being, like, a bat, like, hitting you in the back of the head. So I'm 
Sorry, Mandy, you're wrong. That's horrifying. Go ahead. I don't know. You <laughs> might turn me to like your side. Perfect. I don't know. In January 2011, Dwayne Deaver was fired when an independent audit of the agency he worked for found that he had inaccurately represented the evidence in at least 34 cases, including one case which a man was falsely accused and convicted of Say murder. Say it again, 34. 34 cases. Um, and Melissa knows a little bit more about, a little more detail about this, but there was one guy who had spoken out and... Um, I guess his conviction was overturned yeah. after this Deaver character um, had kind of oh, done a little bit of fudging of his, the evidence in this yeah. case. So Greg Taylor was convicted of murder, had a life sentence, and he basically drove off to the woods, did drugs with a friend, his car got caught, they left, came back, found a body, called 911, and that was it for him. It, he said it all went downhill after that. And Deaver basically said that there was blood found on the side of his car. Well, it was never even blood. Like, nothing was really tested. He had, like, a history of not showing the positive results versus the negative. And so by omitting that, like I tell my kids, if you're omitting the truth, you're lying. So that's what he did, and that guy was exonerated after 17 years. Also, so they brought on, and by the way, the lawyer, the defense attorney, um, he, he, he brought this up the first time, like in the main trial, and talked about Deaver's like really sketchy methods that he conducted for like trying to replicate how the blood ended up in certain places, right? So when team brought on David Lee to be their expert witness, right, and he's this world famous pathologist, like amazing man who I wish I knew because he just seems so cool. Right. And um, certainly if you follow true crime, you've heard him mentioned in lots of other important cases that he's been brought in to like, you know, talk about. And um, what he said was that like, that's not how you conduct an experiment. Like that's not even the right approach. Right. You're supposed to like, you're supposed to go through the, the story of what you, the prosecutor, you know, however it's going, like how you think it happened and how people would naturally um, behave in a certain way and what are the results of that right. and it seems like Deaver was working the exact opposite way he was like what kind of motion can I swing this blowpoke with to make sure that the blood spatters in that way and in the way I want and like get inside my shorts for example and like they're like literally high-fiving each other dancing his leg all like up you know how like in a creepy way guys stand in shorts yeah. like he was on the stairs in this like completely contorted opinion position and like finally got the blood where it was and the, and they're like celebrating and that's not how this as i now know how this is supposed to go so he was and and the frustrating thing if you're the defense attorney is like i said this then like right why why did it take you you know all these years to discover what I knew all along, which is that this guy is a quack. So the interesting thing in that appeal is when they're actually showing, or the request for a new trial, rather, when they're showing clips of the assistant district attorney saying, if Dwayne Devers is a liar, then, you know, the only way this could be wrong is if Dwayne Devers is a liar. And then come to find out, Dwayne Devers is a liar. So, you know, there goes half their case right there. And a lot of jurors came back and said, yeah, a lot of, you know, the reason I found him guilty was because of the blood evidence that Dwayne Devers testified on. Right. And it, didn't you think it was interesting? So, yes, because of this new information about Dwayne Deaver, like he got um, 
heard again an, another appeal or whatever in front of a judge. And it was the same judge. I love that. Who I know. And I feel like he sat there listening to this, like, and they had all the footage, not from like, you know, some crappy court camera. It was like the clearly the documentary um, raw footage of the trial. Right. And so the defense attorney is just playing back for them, um, you know, our like question after question of what they all said then and how they looked and that makeup and yeah. hair. I feel like we glossed over that. Um, but right. Like he just, um, the, the like two thousands were not pretty for anyone. But no, <laughs> the, I'll say there. the assistant district attorney, Frida, she actually in the nineties, she looked, um, pretty rough like she looked like she was in the 80s but somehow in the 2000s she went back another decade like she was <laughs> multiple decades behind in terms of style and face the 70s like did come back again but like not yet so she was like way ahead of that <laughs> that curve and it must have taken a long time in the morning i'm thinking like she's got this crazy job and like i, I wonder that about a lot of people like there's somebody who does my hair and makeup that is not my job but i wonder about women who have these amazing, like really important and busy jobs, and they spend all this time doing like um, yeah. serious makeup themselves before they start their day or hair or whatever, both. And I think to myself, like that's intense. Like I can't imagine dedicating that kind of time to that. She did not pay anyone for that. I am hundred <laughs> no, percent right. sure. Right. So right. So so he like sorry. So so he brought back all this from the main trial and played it for the judge and was, I mean, how he did not say, I told you so, I do not know. I know. But um, luckily he held his tongue and was very respectful to the judge, like you were misled. On December 16th, Michael was released from jail on bond and placed under house arrest after a judge ordered a new trial, incredibly misleading and liar, liar information. Um, and false testimony about the bloodstain evidence in the case. Not to mention that, like, he, I mean, the ridiculous back and forth of, like, I went to 200 cases, or he had something about hundreds of he'd uh, weighed in on, given an opinion on, and then, like, all these crime scenes he'd been to and all these uh, that involved a fall crime scene right. he got, he's been to. And then the investigator was like, well, look, I read through hundreds of thousands of pages of, um, of case filings. And never once was the word fall used in any of them. Never. So, like, everything he said was a lie. And when you cut back to him and how he said it in the witness stand, like, just his smug face really pissed me off. I'm with you. <laughs> That's your professional opinion. Yep. <laughs> Michael's new trial was set to begin on May 8th, 2017. But a few months prior, in February, news broke that Michael's lawyers had negotiated a resolution with the Durham County DA. And on February 24th, 2017, uh, Michael entered an Alford plea to the voluntary manslaughter of Kathleen. He was sentenced to maximum 86 months in prison with time served, which meant he did not have to serve additional jail time. Let me tell you, the documentary was originally like to do with the first trial in 2000, what was it, 2003? Right. And then there's two additional like postscript um, episodes and the shocking age aging process that happened to Michael Peterson, um, whether you're on his side or not. I mean, the, the cold hard truth is that like eight years in prison, as it wow. turns out, it's not like eight years in regular life because this man looked a thousand years old. He did in that documentary. And you're like, Oh, I mean, it's shocking. Uh, it was it was shocking to see him even cleaned up and in in the court and like in a suit. You're just you find your like he was 
so gaunt and so aged, like his eyes were sunken. I just felt like that is just, it was so, and if, you know, there's any chance in your mind, whether it's owl or not, like that you believe there's innocence there, like you, it, it just breaks your heart to think that like what he's been through, um, as an innocent person. Absolutely. So we've kind of laid out the case. I want to ask theories. What do you think actually happened to Kathleen Alley? Are you on board fully? I, I, I mean, fully is hard for me because, you know, even like, um, though I hate to agree with Mandy, I think she's <laughs> right. Like I have questions. I hate um, to agree with her too. More. I know, but I do sort of feel like they watched a movie and, um, and we're out drinking, like, there's no way he was sober, you know? Right. So I wonder if like a lot of me feels like maybe they fell asleep. So, but I also then, you know, have to really come back to the, like, did she know his story, which we didn't cover here was that, that, that she knew that Kathleen knew that right. he was bisexual and that she was okay with it. I feel like if they could have proven that they would have, and they, they couldn't, or they didn't, you know? And, and so I mean, is there a possibility that, like, there was some big revelation at night? Is that really how that would have ended? Like, in that kind of a bloody thing, it, as you said, like, fight about it tomorrow, or, like, wh why does that lead to her murder? Right. Um, so then I'm left with the owl theory, and as crazy as it sounds, it does not seem um, so crazy to me as him murdering her down a set of stairs, like, after having done it 17 years earlier, like that just, um, it seems even more preposterous to me than an owl. Yeah. Mandy. Well, you know, I'm not fully on board with the owl theory. I mean, I do think, um, you're the conspiracy theorist. This makes no sense. I know. I know. It is hard to explain though, the things like the feathers that were found like in her hair. And like I said, I do think that having a clump of her own hair in her hand in itself is kind of doesn't really speak yeah, to weird. like being beaten because yeah. you wouldn't pull your own hair out if you were being beaten. So that's definitely something interesting. But um, like you said about the, whether she just made this discovery like that night about her husband's affairs and everything, I feel like that's a lot of um, like assumptions because there's really nothing to suggest that, yeah. that she stumbled on that, yeah. you know? And um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I feel bad for Michael in that way, because like that is a seriously personal thing that like got busted wide open for everybody because totally. of this case, because of what happened. And um, it may or may not even have anything to do with it. So, you know, I feel bad. I mean, I could probably be convinced of the owl theory. It wouldn't take much on you. It wouldn't take much. Mm -hmm. I'm. But here's another thing I'll say that I, we didn't mention, but, and, and I don't know like the clinical terms to explain it, but there were, um, you know, she did have those lacerations but there was no blunt force trauma. Right. So when we talk about like, you know, a beating, the reason they picked a blow poke is because it wasn't that hardy an instrument that like a bat that right. would have actually caused, you know, real um, skull damage. That's an interesting thing too, because the way that Deaver like managed to get the spatter to look like it did, if you were to beat someone, if anyone was to like, you know, really choose to go that way, are you really going to only like half hit the person that you're trying to beat to death? Like it just, that part, 
they can't, it, whatever happened, it wasn't that, that to me, like whether you necessarily believe like an actual innocence, like I don't see how you could sit on a jury and convict him, like is the end of that story, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree that the, the evidence is like really wonky there because you can't, you can't really say for Technical sure term, yeah. that anything really in particular happened. But um, what I hate is he deserved a new trial for sure. But by taking the Alford plea, he's saying, yeah, I'm saying I'm guilty of this crime, but I can still plead my innocence. But he can never sue the state for, you know, unlawful imprisonment. Right. He's a felon for the rest of his life. Her sister can say, you murdered my sister and you admitted to murdering my sister. Right. There's a lot of factors that went in with it. But he said making that decision to take the Alfred plea, he made it because of his son who said, dad, there are people that think you're innocent are always going to think you're innocent. People that think you're guilty are always going to think you're guilty. Like, You've got to move on with your life. So I don't know if I'm 100% Al theory, but I'm 100% he deserved a new trial, and I think he got really screwed in the first one. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. And that Alfred plea business is, like, tricky, right? There's some other cases where that, like, might come up soon, like the um, Adnan Sayed case. And and I, I sit there thinking to myself, like, I don't know, because I'm definitely someone who's like, yeah, like, I, I didn't do it in my life, like, you know, getting the people who put me in jail, like you can see where that, like you would want to sort of like clear your name. Right. I mean, and, and get like, make the people who said you did do it, like admit that they're wrong. Right. Um, and yet like, oh my God, how long can you financially like handle that? How long can you just keep sitting in a courtroom all day? Like listening to people talk to you like that? Like I, it's all, I mean, I can, I can sympathize with them doing that because that sounds, all of it sounds horrible to me. If you have a quick minute, we'll do the last thing before we go. We're just going to do rapid fire questions for you. If you're good with that, just first thing that comes off the top of your head. These are incredibly important. There are right and wrong answers. Um, So no big deal. Okay. Ready? Ali Sweeney. What's your favorite snack? Popcorn. Favorite junk food? Love it. Would you consider that Uh, junk food? No. (laughs) Popcorn (laughs) is so good food. Um, Um... my favorite junk food would be um, tougher, like, just because of the time of year, I'm going to go with Girl Scout cookies. Yeah, perfect. The kids show you hate the most? That show Caillou. Yes. <laughs> he is the spawn of Satan, and I'm... I I cannot tell you how many nasty thoughts I have about that, um, that character, and um, though that I was forced to watch it for a period of time, and I would come up with, like... Um, story the storylines that were happening amongst the adults off camera <laughs> like I would just like because you know it would be like a, him Caillou talking to some other little kid and you would only see like the skirt of the mom and like the you know the neighbor right. dad that they're talking to and in my head there's like this whole affair that's happening and like I would concoct all these like the soap <laughs> opera that's going on amongst the adults around poor Caillou and like that's why he's still bald like 37 <laughs> years later you are awesome so is there a, um, are you a morning person or a night owl? See what I did there? No. <laughs> no pun intended. All pun. Um, I am a morning person, though I don't know if that's natural or from being um, an actress, which requires you to wake up very early in the morning. Uh, at Days of Our Lives, I often had a 6 a.m. call time. So um, from a very young age, I was sort of, 
uh, uh, sent into a life of waking up early in the morning and then being exhausted by nighttime. Perfect. My kids give me a 6 a.m. call time there every morning. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, the worst is the middle of the night. Wait, do your kids do this thing where they like have a nightmare or whatever and they come into the room and they just look at you Standing until you. you wake up? <laughs> yeah. I, that is what like n- the nightmares are made of. I, I, I find myself just like, it, that is the worst way to wake up. It is. And they're the so calm. And then just they telling are. you about well, it. Actually, I remember doing that to my parents. And like, I even can remember like being about five or six and just going into my parents' room. And like the reason that I wouldn't just announce myself or say anything is because I was like scared to wake them up. So I would just like stand there staring until one of them woke up. And of course, every time like, <laughs> my mom would wake up and she would like jump out of her skin, yeah. you know, and be like, what Way are you worse. doing? Like, yeah, like, what are you doing in here? And, um, you know, and then so, of course, I would always be caught by surprise by that response. And like, you know, I mean, nobody likes to be woken up in the middle of the night. But when you're a kid, like you don't know what to expect. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So maybe that's why they do it. But yeah, my kids have totally done that, too. And I always have the same response. I'm like, oh, my God, like, what are you doing in my room? Like, yeah. go, go back to bed. <laughs> they don't seem surprised that they are upset by the fact that you are now in a cold sweat. Is Dean Kane your all-time favorite co-star? And there is a correct answer to this, and it has to be yes, because 12-year-old me will be crushed if it's not him. <laughs> I adore him. No, it was impossible not to transport it back to uh, Lois and Clark right. when I was sitting next to him. I was like, oh, my God, you're amazing. <laughs> yeah, like now he gets to win the co-star awards ceremony. Um, he is and just as, like, polite and lovely and professional as you could ever hope to be and then he has rescue dogs which like you know yeah up through the roof in terms and of his son like, he's been a single dad with his son and he has such a good relationship i stalk him on instagram sometimes but he has such a good relationship <laughs> it's not a full-time job here i've got other people to stalk so <laughs> can't do that right. and then our last question is what is your favorite true crime podcast hosted by two moms who have no idea why ali sweeney wanted to come on their show <laughs> <laughs> there's only one answer <laughs> moms and murder hello the fact that um my favorite part of your story by the way is that you needed to adjust your logo to add the word podcast because like other words otherwise people might be confused for like moms who murder or moms I mean, I don't know where this it, was going, but like, thank God you put the word podcast in that logo. We thought like it could have turned into like a cult where people just go around all day asking you if you've had a bowel movement yet. <laughs> that's about all that could happen. Oh my God. So, oh my God. That's no, awesome. it's amazing. And by the way, this has been as amazing as I thought it would be. You guys are super fun. Okay. And I, I love like listening to your podcast and I love being on your podcast. So there we go. I hope that people like listening to it because it would be really disappointing for me. They're like, how can you let that soap actress on your show? Like, please don't let that happen. People again. are going no crazy. Way. Don't no way. And if it does happen, don't. No, we're not going to It's going to be, it's going to be your fans that are going to be like, what is she doing? Why yeah, did she do exactly. that? <laughs> no, no. no, I, I'm like such a, like a super fan. But like, I really listen. I don't know what other podcasts you guys listen to, but it like is so, so much more satisfying other than the part where like when I'm running, I'm afraid I'm being chased, of course. like listening to this podcast. Um, and, it, and at night it's, I feel that it's a little detrimental to my like mental health, sure. but in general, it's so, I feel informed. I feel so much more like on top of 
how they could come at me and what I should do about it. Right. Um, and what not to Google. Yeah. Uh, that it's really, those are the key things I've learned. We're keeping you alive and out of jail. Yeah. That's it. So you, <laughs> so you mentioned um, already True Crime Garage. Uh, what other true crime podcasts do you listen to? So my true crime journey, um, as most people, started with cereal, right? right? And um, it was like one Christmas, and I was, I just remember like in my slippers in the kitchen making dinner, and I think that I never made dinner. Like I think I listened to the entire show from start to finish, all, all the episodes, and never spoke to anyone or did anything <laughs> like for the eight hours it took. Um, and... So that was like the beginning of the end for me. And then, um, I don't know if you know, but my husband is a police officer. Yes. So we're not stalking he, you. We just have, <laughs> no, right. I mean, that's, that's out there, but he, um, he gets super, I shouldn't say annoyed because he's not annoyed. He's just like, this is my job and I don't want to talk about it at home, but I have like all sorts of questions for him. I'm like, how could they do that? And why do they say that? And what, and of course, cause he's my husband and he's an amazing investigator. He is not like those people you hear about. Right. Um, he's like, he's like, I don't know why they do that. That's not what I do. You know, like <laughs> I, that's, I can't, you know, I don't represent like the, that, you know, area of the business. Yeah. So so, but I do find myself like asking him all sorts of legal questions all the time. And then from there, like making a murderer had came out shortly thereafter. And that was like another, you know, um, like kids go play with your, you know, toys, like I'll be back tomorrow. Kind of thing. Um, and then the podcasting, like just really, I, I drive a lot for work. I, um, I, you know, I go for runs a lot, so I'm outside a lot and it just really took off. So to answer your question now, a long way around to get to the answer, which is, um, I listen to, uh, also, I love true crime garage. I love, um, real crime profile. Do you listen to them with Jim Clemente and Laura Richards? I know Jim Clemente, but yeah, I haven't listened to that. That's supposed to be really good. Um, they're super interesting. He's an, he was a former FBI profiler and, um, he writes for, uh, a show on CBS. And then Laura Richards is like, a, she's British and she's amazing. And Lisa's and Betty is a casting director. The three of them do this great podcast and they cover a lot. Like, it's interesting because they cover a lot of cases, but they also cover like, you know, um, they covered Manhunter and that show on Netflix. Oh, no, Mind sorry, Hunter. Mindhunter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they just talk about stuff that like also stuff that I watch. And so it's really interesting to hear their professional perspective on like on that stuff. And um, I'm trying to listen, think of what other ones I'm, I love. Um, oh, and of course, Truth and Justice. Like, I love Bob Ruff. And I'm super interested. He's doing the um, Memphis Three case mm -hmm. right now, which if you haven't, um, they're really, I mean, you have young kids too, like me. It's, it's sometimes that part's really hard for me. Uh, and yet even more like a mom, I think I just find myself like, what can I do to like, how do I make sure this does not happen to me? Yeah, no, I get it. I don't listen to any cases with kids, but I do listen to that one because I know he handles it, everything so well and so respectful and does such a good job. All right, guys. So you have heard the case of Michael Peterson and the owl theory um, that Melissa and Allie Sweeney believe. Again, like so judgy. <laughs> So judgy. Does, does the judgment come through in my voice <laughs> that bad? It really does. Uh, we hope you guys have really enjoyed this episode. Allie, thank you so much. We um, could not think of a better person to come on and tell this story with us. You did such a good job, and uh, I'm so, so glad fun. you chose this case. Well, awesome. thank you for coming on, and we will see you guys next week. Bye. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.